Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bethany. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Joey. I'm one of the lead pastors here. And I have, just before we get started, I have a quick question for you. Why are you here? I mean, have you ever really thought about that? Why, why are you here on a Sunday morning? I don't mean this in the existential sort of sense of like, why am I here? You know, why do I exist? But I mean, like, why, why have you chosen to be at Faith Church on a Sunday morning? My family, we've, we've only been here at Faith for about six, six and a half years. And I say only because I've met some of you and I know that um, six years is minuscule in comparison to the decades that you've committed to worship at Faith Church. I'm way below the average, especially for this service. No offense intended. <laughs> so one of my favorite questions to ask people uh, when we get together for coffee or something like that is, hey, what, what drew you to faith? What, what keeps you here at Faith Church? And I love asking that question because I love all the sorts of answers I get. It's, it's usually the same sort of things, you know, friendly people. Uh, I felt like we really connected. We love the emphasis on missions. Sometimes when we're singing, they even put all the words up on the screen for us. So that, <laughs> sorry, Julie, I couldn't resist. I know, I saw you back there checking them this morning. and At least we know what you need to get better at. Yeah. So... I can tease you because last week I said I'd preach a shorter sermon and then went almost 50 minutes. So um, today's is a couple pages shorter than a couple weeks ago, just in case you were wondering. Anyway, back to this. (laughs) If I were sitting down with you over a cup of coffee and I asked you that question, why are you at Faith Church? What would you say? 
what would you respond to me? Why are you here? We're taking a couple of weeks at the beginning of this year to kind of refocus ourselves um, on why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing in this sermon series we're calling uh, Looking Forward. You may have noticed every week the, uh, the images shifting from one road to another as we kind of try to look forward. What road might God be taking us down? Uh, our pastoral team thought it was important for us to spend a few weeks just thinking about some of these questions. Uh, why do we exist? What kind of a community are we called to be? What are we, what are we called here at 91st in College to do? So if you've been with us for this whole series, this is a bit of a recap, but you, you may remember we started out by looking at Christ's example of sacrificial leadership. Uh, what does his example uh, of self-sacrifice, how does that communicate or how does that transfer into our own leadership uh, as pastors, as elders, and in the way we lead in the world around us? Uh, we then moved to studying God's glory from Isaiah's experience, from Isaiah 6, of seeing God high and lifted up. Uh, we talked about how our response to God's glory and his holiness should be one of worship. Last week, Jeff led us to consider the nature of the kind of community God is trying to form in a church, a community with a deep commitment to life together. And this week, we're shifting our focus uh, to talk about the mission of the church in the world. What is this community shaped by life together and the worship of God supposed to then do? Why are we here, in other words? Now, we've been moving through these topics in an intentional order. The, the life of the early church was characterized by this, uh, these, this rhythm of, well, they called it liturgia, koinonia, and diakonia, which just means worship, life together, and service or mission. The early church was characterized by this, this kind of threefold emphasis of worship, life together, service. And I think those... Those three rhythms should be, in large part, what we try to embody as well. Uh, so we've been moving from worship to life together to service or our mission, which is what we're going to dig in today, this, this aspect of service, of our mission in the world, our mission to the world. And actually, in the next two weeks after this, we're going to look at how that call to serve, that call to go, uh, works itself out in the world at large and in the city right around us. So if you... If you're the type of person who sneaks in late to the service and misses the announcements, this is just a quick commercial. Uh, if, you, if you didn't catch it, next week, the global outreach team is bringing in Dr. Paul Borthwick, who is a, kind of a mission statesman. Um, he's a professor at Gordon College and uh, wrote Western Christians and Global Mission, serves the church worldwide in leadership training and mission strategy. And we invited him in, the global outreach team did, to review our missions program. We want to learn how we can be we can be better and more involved in missions, more strategic in our objectives, take better care of our missionaries. Uh, this is important to us because God has called us to reach the world. So after the church service next week, well, Dr. Borthwick's going to preach in the service, and then afterwards you'll have a chance to uh, interact with him in a smaller setting and actually ask him questions and get his feedback. So please come to the lunch next week in 210 right after church. We can hopefully help, have him help us answer this, questions, this question, what does missions have to do with me? All right, commercial over. We'll go back to the sermon. So as we're talking about service, the mission that God is calling us to, uh, to guide our consideration of this, we're going to look at a passage that many of you are, are probably very familiar with, uh, Matthew 28. We call it the Great Commission. It's the great uh, mission that God has given to the church. 
Uh, so if you haven't already turned turn there, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 28. And just a, a fair warning, uh, this sermon is less of an exposition of this passage and more of an extended meditation. So if you come up to me afterwards and say, you know, that was good, but you only talked about like one word in the whole passage, it's just fair warning ahead of time. That's, that's what you're in for. So we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Uh, this Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, uh, where Jesus comes to them, comes to the 11 disciples. Remember, it was 12 until one of them no longer was a disciple. And uh, so they're down to the 11. Probably most scholars think there was more than just the 11 here, but there's a pretty good crowd. Matthew makes some really interesting notes as uh, we get into this. He talks about people doubting or hesitating still. Uh, which is just a nice human touch, I think, that, that these, these people for whom this idea of resurrection was just completely out of their categories, even seeing the resurrected Jesus are looking at him and saying, is this, is this really true? Uh, one commentary, uh, Don Carson says about this, that just because they were faced with Jesus didn't turn uh, them from, uh, didn't turn them into spiritual, spiritual giants in an instant. It, it still took some time. So they came, they see him, they worship him. Some are hesitating, some are doubting. But then Jesus says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now I want you to notice that authority is different from power. If you ever thought about that, power is a word that tends, we tend to use to mean like physical strength, the actual ability to do something. Whereas authority is, is kind of a right that's granted to you or given to you in order to do something. And hopefully that authority comes along with it, the power. Sometimes it doesn't. I've noticed that uh, in the office, particularly with my administrative assistant and director of faith student ministry, I have authority to tell them what to do, but sometimes, okay, most of the time, not the power to actually tell them what to do. My wife has started calling them my insubordinates instead of my subordinates, which keeps the office really fun. I'm not complaining at all. We have, a, we have a great time. Jesus here is saying, I've been given all the authority. And we know he already had the power. We watched it all the way through the Gospels. If you're reading through, you see uh, over and over again Jesus demonstrating his power through miracles, through his teaching, through just completely astounding people. Uh, he has the power. And now he's saying after his resurrection, God has given me all the authority. He's been given by God the authority to rule in all possible realms, in all possible ways. Legally, politically, socially, morally, Jesus has the authority to call the shots in every area of life in the entire world. Another way to say it is that Jesus lacks nothing by way of the right to give orders, make decisions, or enforce obedience. Which is a pretty audacious claim if you think about it, especially in our uh, modern pluralistic society. It would have been nice if Jesus had tempered it a little bit. If he'd said, I have some authority or a little bit authority or all authority over my followers. But he doesn't say that. He says, I have all authority. I lack nothing by authority. And if that's, if that's false... If he really doesn't have that kind of authority, then Jesus has a credibility problem. He comes across uh, a little like a dictator, which I suppose may be how the passage sounds uh, to some of us who don't really like having to follow an authority. 
I've heard this is the big problem with Christianity, that Christians are so um, exclusive in the way we talk about who Jesus is, that he alone is God and has all authority. Uh, instead of agreeing with enlightened people that Jesus is a way to God, Christians instead insist that Jesus is the way to God, the only way to God. Instead of saying that Jesus is one of the options, we say, no, in the end, he's the only option. That, I know that sounds exclusive. I just want to point out briefly, uh, as we think about this idea of authority, that when someone uh, claims that it's wrong to make exclusive truth claims, they are in that act making an exclusive truth claim about who can and who can't make exclusive truth claims. Just keep that in mind. Uh, everyone lives by truth claims that are at odds with somebody else's understanding of truth. So the question isn't uh, who is exclusive and who isn't, but what kind of exclusive do you want to be? Let's keep that in mind. Because if what we're reading here is true, if everything we've read in the 28 chapters leading up to this moment is true, if Jesus is the God who has all authority, then he has the exclusive right to tell us, his followers, and the rest of the world, what we should be doing with our lives. But think about his authority. It's an authority he earns by his sacrificial love for us, not his power over us. If Jesus really is the God who died and rose again to redeem us from our own rebellion against his authority, it should make us want to dedicate our lives to introducing others to his benevolent rule. How do you resent the authority of the person who gave up everything in order to win you back? And because Jesus has the authority, he gives us a mission. And this is where we're going to focus for the rest of the morning. Because he has the authority, he gives his disciples a mission. And through them, he gives us a mission. The mission that Jesus gives this day on the mountain in Galilee is the same mission that we have today, almost 2,000 years later. Because it's a, mission, it's a mission that doesn't end until the king returns and says, well done. Until the king returns, until Jesus comes back, we are still on this mission. So let's take a look at it. What is this mission that Jesus is calling his followers to do? What is it he's, he's telling us is our job, our duty? Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're going to spend a few minutes here digging into the grammar of this, but just so you know where we're going, I think there's one mission that comes with two main parts, and it's pretty simple. Uh, the first part is be disciples, and the second part is make disciples. The mission of the church is to be disciples and make disciples. If you want to write anything down, write that down. Be disciples and make disciples. And, and both aspects of this mission come from uh, the one main verb in this passage, to make disciples. And the reason I think there's two parts to the mission is because you can't make a disciple if you aren't already a disciple. You can't turn people into something you're not. So in order to, to follow his command to make disciples, we have to first, first be disciples, be in the process of becoming disciples. And I know it sounds pretty simple, be disciples, make disciples. In theory, when you put it that way, it is pretty simple. Uh, but there seems to be two schools of thought out there on discipleship. I don't know if you, you probably don't do what I do and, and read all this literature about discipleship. But 
it's kind of my job, so I read a lot of the stuff about it, and it seems like there's these two very different opinions. Some people say that the way the church thinks about discipleship today is just too complicated, uh, that the church is unnecessarily complicating something that's actually really simple if we just did it the way Jesus did it. Others say that the way the church talks about discipleship is just too simple. Uh, that there's so much culture and history and worldview and ethnography and anthropology that all needs to go into how we think about what discipleship is and how it works in a post-Christian America that the church needs to just throw everything out and basically start all over from scratch. Rethink the whole thing. Since we don't have time to do all of that this morning, I'm going to err on the side of a simple explanation. But in reality, I think you know, real surprise here, that it's, it's a combination of both. I think we both overcomplicate discipleship and oversimplify it in different ways. Look again back at this passage, verses 19 and 20. Uh, if you look at just 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. You, you, can, you can drill into just the essence of the commission uh, of this task. If you go through the passage and count the verbs you'll find four main verbs. And just as an aside, this is a great party trick if you've never tried this. Like if you're standing around at a, at a mixer thing and it's getting awkward, just be like, hey guys, do you see that sign? Let's count the verbs. Like people love that. It really breaks the ice. It, <laughs> let, let's diagram this thing here. Now, normally I wouldn't get all, like, all geek out on the grammar stuff um, of counting verbs and doing diagrams and stuff like that, but sometimes when we look at a passage that's so familiar to us, uh, we miss the obvious right in front of it, right in front of our faces, because we've, just, we've gotten so used to looking at it. So, let's do something fun. Let's count verbs. There's four main verbs in this passage. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. And the other one sort of modifies some of those. The primary command is to make disciples. That's the only verb that in the Greek is an imperative, a command. It's like a do this command, okay? Uh, but the verb just before it, the one that says go, is a, it's a secondary command. It borrows an imperatival force from the main verb. That's just a fancy way of saying that Jesus is saying go and make, if you've ever heard somebody teach it or preach it or say something like, it, it's a participle, so it should be translated in your going, um, that's really bad Greek grammar. And you can come talk to me about it later. I'll explain why that, that it's not a valid interpretation. And we can, we can nerd out on it together and not subject all of you to our geekiness. But if you're not the type of person who you know, really wants to dig deep into the grammar, just take my word for it. Don't translate it in your going. It's a command. It's not the most important command, but it is a command. Because if you think about it, Jesus is standing on a mountain with 11 guys, and he's saying, I want you to take this to the whole world. Some of them are going to have to go. Somebody's going to have to go. It's the, it's the same, okay, I said I wasn't going to do this, but I am. It's the same grammar setup as when the angel shows up to Joseph, and he says, uh, wake up and take Jesus to Egypt. He doesn't say, hey, when you happen to wake up, take Jesus to Egypt. He says, get up. It's, it's a command. We're supposed to go and make disciples. I guess now you don't have to come find me afterwards to ask about the grammar. <laughs> two more verbs, uh, baptize and teach. Now, those two verbs explore some of the activities that are associated with the main command of making disciples. Making disciples can't happen without baptism and instruction. Uh, that doesn't mean that 
only baptism and instruction go into making disciples, but at least those two are required. You have to baptize people, which means bring them into, into the community, and you have, to, you have to teach them what it means to be a Christian. These are at least two of the basic things that are required for the formation of disciples. And now that I've pointed all that out, you're probably still wondering if that really clarifies the idea of discipleship. It's like, oh, great, we counted verbs. Thanks. So what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to start going baptizing and teaching people? Um, do we just, you know, go find a few people and baptize them and say, now sit down and let me talk to you? That's not exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Maybe it would help if we answered this question of what's a disciple? We talk a lot about discipleship, and a lot of people write a lot about discipleship without ever really asking the question, well, what's a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And it's actually a more difficult question than it sounds because if we try to come up with a short answer, uh, then it feels like we leave out key parts of what it, it feels like it means to be a disciple. But the longer the definition gets, the more we start hearing accusations that we're making discipleship more complicated than it's supposed to be. So I'm going to try to use a short definition that I borrowed from one of my seminary professors. He actually uses this as the subtitle of his book on spiritual formation. He says, a disciple is someone who is living life with God for the world. It's a pretty short and fairly simple definition, and it probably works better internally, like inside the church, than it does externally, if we were trying to explain it to somebody uh, who's not a follower of Jesus. But at least uh, in the church, I think we could, we could get on board with this idea that a disciple is someone living life with God for the world. And the reason I like that definition is that it encompasses both of the two main parts of what it means to be a disciple. Uh, according to this Great Commission passage, uh, life with God for the world is essentially saying, be a disciple who makes disciples. Be disciples and make disciples. Life with God, be a disciple for the world. Make disciples. When we talk about this process of, of being a disciple and making a disciple, we, we call that discipleship. If you were around a couple weeks ago when we were looking at Isaiah 6 and talking about worship, I, I pointed out that 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 ship suffix on the end usually or can denote a skill or an ability. Uh, so like entrepreneurship is the ability, the skill of being a good entrepreneur. Um, and outdoorsmanship is the, the ability to be a, a good outdoorsman, you know, go out in the woods and not die. Um, it's something you can grow in. Uh, just as worship is this, a skill, the ability of, of declaring publicly the worth of something you value... Discipleship is this process of growing in your skill, your ability, your, uh, you know, how good of a disciple you are. Discipleship is just this process of becoming a disciple. If you think about it this way, a disciple is both something you are and something you are becoming. It's a, it's a, it's a thing you already, you know, you're already living into being a disciple, but you're also becoming a better one. And when Jesus said, make disciples... He wasn't just making an idea up out of thin air. It was a pretty common practice. A, a disciple was someone who had committed themselves to a master in order to acquire, their theoretical, acquire that master's theoretical and practical skills. Uh, so this person could be an apprentice in a trade uh, or a student of medicine or a philosophy, a follower of a, of a rabbi or another religious teacher. 
So it was a person who had essentially said, I want to learn everything I can from you. I'm, just, I'm going to commit myself to you for as long as it takes. And you could only be a disciple if you had a master. You could only be a disciple if you had a teacher, somebody to learn from. A tradesperson was discipled to a master craftsman. A young student was uh, discipled by a master physician or a philosopher. A young religious person had to be discipled by a rabbi, by a religious teacher. It wasn't something you just you did on your own and said, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm a disciple. They'd always say, of who? Who are you following? And so for the amount of time that it actually took you to acquire the skills to begin to be as good as your teacher, you essentially, a disciple essentially lived and ate and, and breathed and did life with that person, with, with their master. And the goal was you wanted to learn how to work like them, talk like them, act like them, be like them, think like them. So that when, when the time came and everyone was looking to you to produce, you could do it almost as well as your master could. In fact, they could tell by the way you made whatever it was, a table, or the way you performed medicine, or the way you thought through a philosophical problem. They're like, oh, that must be a disciple of so-and-so, because he looks just like them, thinks just like them, acts just like them. And that's the image that's in the background of Jesus saying, make disciples. Except Jesus also changed up the image in some pretty important ways. Uh, first is that discipleship with Jesus doesn't have an end date. There's, you never get to a point where you've acquired all the knowledge you need to then strike out on your own. There's no end date, and it's not just a, a part of our lives. One person wrote, we are disciples of Jesus in our whole lives for the whole of our lives. We're disciples of Jesus in our whole lives for the whole of our lives, and we never become greater than or even equal to our master. In the trades, you may uh, acquire the skills and perfect them to the point where you're better than the person who taught you. That will never happen when you're a disciple of Jesus. We never outgrow him. Another key way that Jesus changed this idea of discipleship from what was sort of common in the culture to this to this understanding from Matthew 28, he said that, well, essentially he's saying that discipleship is not just the acquisition of a skill uh, or a body of knowledge that the master can share. When we're disciples of Jesus, we're not getting to know uh, a craft as much as we're getting to know a person, which is different. You're not, Jesus isn't coming alongside of us to teach us how to be better people or how to achieve our goals, or how to whatever. He's coming alongside of us to teach us how to know him, and how to be like him. There's more. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is not just a solitary endeavor. When we become his disciples, he brings us into a tradition, into a history with its own distinct language and a set of practices that now have been formed over centuries, all with the goal of forming us more and more into people who can know him better. And when we turn and begin to make disciples ourselves, we're not making disciples of ourselves. We're making disciples of Jesus. Instead of saying, I'm the master now and you can learn from me, we're saying, look, he's the master. Let's learn from him together. It's easy, I think, for us to get the idea that discipleship is primarily about education. It's about information. And we look at the Great Commission, the text itself, and we see Jesus say, teach 
them to observe all that I have commanded you. And teach does carry, carry with it this idea of going over the same concepts over and over and over again until you know them cold and you can, you can kind of give the answers back. But he doesn't just say teach them to know everything that I told you, but teach them to observe everything I commanded you. That we're not teaching people to know a, a, like a body of information. To be a disciple and to disciple others means to, to train people to train ourselves and to train others and to be trained into people who observe, who obey what Jesus has commanded. Here's what I'm getting at. I I think any concept of discipleship that sees becoming disciples or making disciples as a primarily educational or informational enterprise will necessarily overcomplicate and oversimplify what it means to be a disciple. It oversimplifies the process because it turns knowing a person into knowing about a person, which are completely different things. And it overcomplicates the process because we start taking increasingly complex systems of thought and information we think we need to know and, use, and, and focus on that instead of the, the skilled ability to know someone. So I think we need to recapture an idea uh, or an understanding of discipleship as something more like an apprenticeship and less like, um, less like a class or an educational endeavor. If we don't, I think we're going to be left wondering why we're just not that effective at making disciples, why we keep offering more and more classes and just not seeing people seem to grow. So I guess if I were translating this passage myself or just um, rewriting it a little bit, I might change it. So instead of saying teaching them to observe, we'd say something like training them to observe. Uh, emphasizing the fact that discipleship is not just about learning information. It's a little more like learning a, a skill. About 20 years ago, uh, an American theologian named Stanley Hauerwas Uh, He was at the time, he was a professor uh, of ethics at Duke University. He published an article called Discipleship as a Craft. Not craft as in like the stuff your kids do in kindergarten or first grade, but craft as in like a trade or a discipline. Uh, Harvoss himself grew up as the son of blue-collar laborers in Texas and was apprenticed in his dad's bricklaying trade from the age of seven. The thing I really like about this guy, just as an aside, is in 2001, Time Magazine named him American Theologian, or Best American Theologian. And he responded by saying, best is not a theological category. <laughs> and that, it just kind of makes, makes me laugh. I don't know. I, I think it'd be fun to be sort of a cantankerous old theologian. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> anyway, in the article, Harvas claims that uh, learning to be a disciple is not so much about learning um, a set of facts. He says it's not even about learning a set of facts and then adding on to it behaviors, certain behaviors. He says it's about learning a craft, learning a discipline, uh, and being inculcated into the life of a community that practices that craft together. At one point he says this, to learn to lay brick, it's not sufficient for you to be told how to do it. You must learn to mix the mortar, build scaffolds, joint, and so on. Moreover, it's not enough to be told how to hold a trowel, how to spread mortar, or how to frog the mortar. In order to lay brick, you must, hour after hour, day after day, lay brick. Now, I'm summarizing some of what he's saying in this article, and and parts of it I'm not sure if I agree with or not. Uh, But near the end of his article, he he digs into this idea a little more with with an example when he says that um, he often, as a a theologian on a 
more or less pluralistic campus, he often has people come up to him and say, tell me what Christianity is all about. Explain this to me. And he said for years he would, he would start with the Trinity. He'd say, well, we need to understand what's distinctive about Christianity is some of these beliefs. And then uh, he says this. He says, after many years of vain attempts to explain God as Trinity, I now say, well, to begin with, we Christians have been taught to pray, our Father, who art in heaven. He says, I then suggest that a good place to begin to understand what we Christians are about is to join me in that prayer. In a sense, he's saying, if, if you want to learn how to lay brick, don't pick up a book about how to lay brick and read it. Come with me. Let's go lay some brick. And he's saying discipleship is the same way. If you want to learn what it means to follow Jesus, uh, our first impulse shouldn't be, let me sign up for a class on that or read a book about it. But who's following Jesus that I could follow and learn from? That's what it means to be a disciple who's making disciples. Now, part of this transition that we're going through at Faith with each of us pastors changing roles around is that we're also changing offices, uh, making room for a new student ministry pastor that we're currently searching for. And so each of us, we've kind of done this sort of dance around the offices one at a time, moved a little bit. And so I just have been moving into Pastor Jeff's old office which was Pastor Bob's before that, you know, Pastor Don's before that. Uh, moving in there, and uh, there's no bookshelves uh, in there, and I have a lot of books. And I was starting to think, I don't really want to go to Target and just um, buy, you know, some $39.99 bookshelves that are going to fall apart in four or five years. I'm going to make some bookshelves. I've never done it before, but I'm arrogant enough to think that, you know, the only difference between me and smart people is there's a book they've read that I haven't. So I, uh, I started, that's not true. I mean, it's true that I think that, but it's not actually true in reality. But so I started, you know, the first thing I did was Google how to make bookshelves. Found fine woodworking and fine home building and a couple other stuff. Started reading some articles. And then it's like, ooh, Google videos. So I start watching videos of guys building bookshelves really fast, like they speed it up so you don't just have to sit there and watch for three hours. It, goes, it makes it look really easy when it's done in nine minutes. But I, I'm watching it. They're sharing their tips and tricks and things to learn about making bookshelves. Uh, next up, I went to the library and I picked up four books on bookshelf, bookcase design, how to make them. Then I went to Target and bought some graph paper and graphed out how I was going to build these bookshelves. And then I finally went to Lowe's and bought some plywood and started assembling the cases, which was really fun. Here's what I learned from, from all this research, at least when it comes to woodworking. There's three things that are essential. Knowledge, technique, and your goal, your end results. Some of you who actually know what you're talking about when you talk about this particular craft are saying that you're totally off base. But at least it works for my analogy here, so I'm going to go with this. Knowledge, technique, and some sort of goal. I went after knowledge as much as I could and jumped straight to the goal. And you can tell by looking at them that my technique is very amateurish. There's kind of a lack of straight lines in a few places, you know, a few beveled edges that weren't supposed to be beveled, some chips that weren't supposed to be there, uh, you know. My technique needs some work. What I'm trying to say is, is that if I had just acquired as much knowledge as I could and then not build the bookshelves, like what's the, what's the point of all the knowledge? Or even if I had learned as much as I could and then added to that knowledge uh, a mastering of technique 
And I had just gotten the tools I needed and practiced using them over and over and over again until I could use them very well and it felt natural, but never actually built bookshelves. Then what's the point of learning all of that technique? Let me make my point plain so that we can leave this woodworking analogy in the dust. <laughs> that was just, that was a plum joke. I couldn't, I couldn't leave it there. I know. I have a whole string of these if you want me to keep going. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, uh, I think sometimes when it, comes to being, when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, we settle for knowledge. Or even settle for knowledge plus technique. And practice knowing Jesus. But never get to the goal or the end result. What is the goal of discipleship? What is the goal, the end result that we're hoping for, that we're aiming at when we seek to become a disciple of Jesus? I mentioned it earlier, but I'll say it again. Uh, the end goal of discipleship isn't just to be like Christ or to imitate Jesus. That's part of it, but it's not the whole of it. Discipleship is about becoming like Jesus so we can get to know Jesus better and so that we can experience a relationship with God through Jesus. Sometimes we talk about discipleship as if the end goal is to imitate Christ, as if what we're trying to do is become a, type, you know, a group of people who act like Jesus would act if he were here. And that's good, but that's not the whole of it. The point of discipleship is to be so much like Jesus that we can experience the relationship with God the one that he bought for us by his sacrificial death on the cross. He didn't die just so that we would become like him. He died so that we could know God. And the part of the way we come to know God is by becoming like Jesus. So yeah, the part of the goal of discipleship is to become like Jesus, but that's not the end. That's the means to the end of knowing God. It's easy, if we don't keep this in mind, to confuse learning about God with experiencing a relationship with God. It's possible to learn more and more about God and about Jesus. It's possible to learn more without actually coming to know him anymore. It's possible to get these things confused because we need knowledge. We need to learn. Just to, when you're in a dating relationship and you're just getting to know somebody, uh, you need to learn some facts about them. If all you know about them is like that scene in Frozen, you know, where um, it, she gets engaged the first day she meets, his, I think his name is Hans. I don't know. Anna doesn't like him. He's the bad guy. Anna, my daughter, doesn't like him. Not Anna. The Anna in the, we named her before the movie came out, I just want to say. Uh, and we spell it differently. So she's going she's gonna to be burdened with this her entire life. But, uh, you know, and then uh, I think Christoph is saying, wait, what, you don't even know his last name. Like, how can, you, how can you know him if you don't know these things about him? There are things you need to know about someone in order to actually know them. But you can't confuse knowing a list of facts about somebody for actually knowing somebody. I could tell you a whole bunch of things about my daughter, about how funny she is and about how weird she is because she's my kid and about, you know, how she loves cats and chickens and unicorns and, you know, all this stuff. But you, if all you have is that information, you still don't know her. If you want to get to know her, spend time with her. Come babysit her. And she'll just talk <laughs> nonstop. 
and, and it's great, you know, to a point, because you can give her back, so it's great for you guys, but um, <laughs> you actually get to know somebody that's different than just getting to know about them. We want to learn more about God, more about Jesus, because by learning more, we can know him more. That's the goal. All right, I've just got a couple of minutes left, so we've covered the first point of the sermon. Let's go to the second half of the mission of the church. I I said the mission of the church has two parts. Number one, be disciples. Number two, make disciples. If you're going to summarize the mission of the church, it's pretty simple. Be disciples, make disciples. Now, I'm actually not going to explain too much about the second half because that's what the next two weeks are for. Uh, How does this work out in the world around us? How does it work in the city right around us? Uh, Dr. Borthwick speaking on it next week on reaching the world, and then Pastor Jeff's coming the week after that to talk about reaching the city. But I just want to point out that if we focus on one half of the mission uh, at the expense of the other, we're going to get off balance. If we focus on just the first half, being disciples, then we end up with um, what one person calls a sort of narcissistic spirituality. Uh, Focus entirely inward on our relationship with God and completely missing the fact that God is sending us out, not just calling us in. But if we focus too much on the second half, on just making disciples, on just being sent out, then we end up with a new legalism. You know, a spiritual activism that measures the value of our relationship with God based on how many disciples we're making. So if we focus on one over the other, then we're going to be off balance. We have to keep them in balance. It's like breathing in and breathing out. You are, you are called into a relationship with God and sent out into the world to bring others into that same relationship with him. Mission and spirituality always should go together as you do life with God for the world. So stick around the next two weeks, Dr. Borthwick next week and and Jeff uh, the week after that, to talk a little bit more, explain a little bit more about what this looks like making disciples. All right, I've got a minute left, so I'm going to do this quickly. You know, as as faith has gone through the, uh, I shouldn't say that because half of you just turned and looked at the clock when I said I had a minute left. Now I'm going to go really fast because I lost all my time explaining that. Faith has been going through this strategic planning process over the last couple of years. Like, what's the, what's the mission of the church? How do we put that into language we can all get around? And, and the mission of Faith Church is the, the same mission as uh, any church has, as the Holy Church Universal has, uh, to declare the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the world. I mean, that's life with God for the world. Declaring the glory of God is worship. It's life with God through the gospel to the ends of the earth is Life with God for the sake of the world. But we knew, you know, at 91st in college, in, in this year, as we look towards the 2020s, we wanted to put some specific language around it that, that helped us say, well, what do we uniquely contribute to this, this overall vision or, or mission of the church? So we crafted this, this vision statement that faith exists to equip followers of Christ to reflect him to the world. And each one of those words was chosen specifically. We know, given the, uh, the type of people that God is bringing together, that we need to be about equipping, not just educating. We need to be about training, not just communicating things that are true. And we want to reflect who Jesus is to the world. Like the moon reflects the light of the sun to a darkened world. It doesn't generate its own light. It reflects light from a greater source. We want to reflect who Jesus is to the world around us. But even with that statement... We felt we didn't have enough direction or enough forward momentum coming out of it 
So another table, another group, putting our heads together again. It says, what kind of world are we reflecting him to? What kind of reflection do we want to have? So we came up with, I guess, what we're, we're calling our direction, to be informed and winsome ambassadors of Christ to our secular culture. This is what, what type of uh, life with God for the world we're trying to cultivate. Informed and wisdom. I guess you could say this is the kind of flavor of disciple that faith feels that God is calling us uh, to create. It's a disciple whose relationship with God is lived out in the world in a way that's appealing to those who don't know God or who he is. Uh, it's a disciple who can have a conversation with someone who doesn't know Jesus and have that person walk away feeling like their perspective was understood and respected. It's a disciple who lives for the kingdom that's coming you know, and passionately and compassionately cares for the people around them who aren't part of that kingdom. It's a disciple who understands that living in a secular culture doesn't mean we're living among enemies. It just means we're living among people who don't think like we do and who don't take anything for granted when it comes to questions of God. That's the kind of disciple that we're, we feel God is calling us to make at faith as we, as we set out on this mission the church has been given to be disciples and to make disciples. So what about you? Why are you at faith? Are you here for the mission to be disciples and to make disciples? Are you living out the mission of the church yourself on an individual level? It's actually pretty simple. Be disciples, make disciples. That's what God's calling us to do. Let's pray. Father, you've given us a simple but difficult task. Uh, we know it's difficult. We know it's difficult to make disciples because we have such. Uh, we sense the struggle in our own lives to be the disciples you've called us to be. Uh, we've committed ourselves to following Jesus and becoming like Him so that we could know You more. Uh, we've committed ourselves to this uh, this long process of learning to be more like Jesus. We've committed ourselves to it, and we know how difficult it is for us, so we know how difficult it must be for others. I pray that you would break in and break through into our hearts and into the hearts of the world around us. Help us be drawn to the beauty of your love for us and want to commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.